welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society. I'm Jay Boisseau, the Executive Director and Founder of the Austin Forum, and I am here today with Professor Sharon Strover, the Philip G. Warner Regents Professor of Communications at the University of Texas at Austin, where she also leads a really exciting project that we're going to get into later called the Good Systems Project. Sharon, thanks for joining us on the Austin Forum Upload. You're welcome. Happy to be here. There's a lot of great talk in the news and media these days about AI. And, you know, it's probably hard for people to remember that just four and a half months ago, ChatGPT wasn't launched. Uh, I think, well, about four and a half months ago, it came out, November 30th. And since then, we're hearing all about not just ChatGPT, but generative AI uh, overall, mid-journey, stable diffusion, et cetera. We're going to talk about all of this today, but our focus for our listeners today is going to be on what's good and what's maybe not good since the Good Systems Project at UT is figuring out how to make good systems and prevent bad systems. So let's let's go ahead and get started with a softball question. What are the nature of some of the concerns about AI that the Good Systems Project at UT and more generally AI experts are worried about? What kinds of, of bad things can happen? Probably the most recognizable negative consequence that people think about with artificial intelligence and generative AI in particular has to do with the ability to rapidly both create and spread bad information. And by bad information, I mean either disinformation, which is deliberately sponsored and created information that is designed to mislead people or mis misinformation which is just untrue information we we see a lot of both of these actually around popular subjects like covid or like po po political situations and the contemporary political environment increasingly we see both these categories of bad information around all things politics. Um, but there's a range of other consequences that are maybe a little more subtle that a lot of people are in fact worried about. One has to do with the more general trend toward automation and work. We've grown accustomed in the industrial era to having tools and technologies do a lot of manual labor, and our labor force, our workforce has adjusted to that over, over centuries, actually. With artificial intelligence, we have opportunities to undertake different kinds of labor, which imperils certain elements of work and workforces that had not been as threatened by automation. For example, the onset of electric vehicles and artificially guided artif vehicles that are guided by artificial intelligence may put a lot of drivers, especially truck drivers, for example, out of business. So the prospect of a really rapid onset of new work rules and new work practices has a lot of people very concerned about the impact of AI. A, a, an even more hidden impact of 
artificial intelligence has to do with the data policies behind the data that run these systems that are used to assemble training data sets and that are used in actual implementations of AI. A lot of people are worried about how good the data are to begin with that AI is trained on. And a lot of that concern comes down to the extent to which existing data might have some built-in biases or some unfairness in the data itself. How representative is, is data that AI is trained on, for example. But even beyond that, the issues of where data come from and who controls it, who owns it, who can use it and reuse it is something that happens behind the scenes. It's very invisible. And that, and we have no nationally agreed upon data policies. We have very few data policies in this country more generally right now. Um, so that's quite concerning. So Sharon, those are a few, yeah, those are a few examples. Yeah, thanks for that list. Mm -hmm. I, I had some in my own list for you and they overlap mm -hmm. with yours. I, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I'm concerned about, but but I, I want people to understand that biases in data are usually unintentional biases. The classic example of this is the training of AIs to recognize tumors and what is a tumor and what is not. Mm -hmm. accidentally was trained to predict that images with a ruler in it were tumors because almost all the tumor images had a ruler for sizing and all of the non-tumor images didn't include that. And yeah. that just speaks to, you know, how AI is still dumb in some ways, although quite powerful in others. And it was an accidental bias in that data. There are certainly many other kinds of biases in data. And this isn't just AI. We've had data biases and statistical studies and Absolutely. You know, uh, drug trials and things like that forever. But it's something that uh, maybe is a little bit more subtle and hidden once you've trained a model, uh, which acts almost as a black box, a, a big deep neural network model. So a Absolutely. And I think the black box element is crucial here. And the element of scale is crucial as well. The black box element speaks to the lack of transparency around a lot of the training data sets. Now, that's not that's not always true, but it is often true. And to the extent that there are proprietary systems using training data to devise their algorithms, say for for hiring or something like that, we may right. never know what the biases are in that in that training data. When it comes to scale, though, what is is worrisome about artificial intelligence is the extent to which it's so adaptable to different circumstances. Uh, whereas in earlier eras, data sets were used a little with a, a, a little bit more precision and their use was more circumscribed for for very narrow applications mm. with something like the generative AI systems we're seeing now with DALI and and with ChatGPT and and its ilk, the scaling of that and the widespread availability and the accessibility to anybody is puts them in a different category, I think. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I'm, I'm going to break down these concerns into sort of two sets, if I can. Roughly, there's a set of unintended negative consequences, and then a set of more intended 
uh, negative consequences. And in the unintended, it might be accidental biases in the data or not monitoring the results properly to make sure that it's producing results that are reasonable. Um, it might be failures to account for what humans can account for. Like we don't have true autonomous vehicles yet because yeah. they can't truly in all circumstances handle all of the circumstances that a human can potentially handle. Um, so there are there are definitely unintended consequences and unknowns and other things that doesn't mean that the developers were bad. It doesn't mean they intentionally use bad data. It doesn't mean they uh, intentionally trusted a model that they know failed at the time. But we have to be on the lookout for that with organizations like your good systems. And then there's, then you mentioned one of the the nefarious uh, uses of it that I am most worried about, which is the uh, misinformation and disinformation. We did a podcast on this a couple of months ago, and you know we talked about there's a you know there's been misinformation and disinformation as long as people have been communicating, but this is a way to generate a lot more of it that sounds credible. Back to the scale issue. Yeah, there's your scale issue. Back to the scale issue. And then I'm, of course, also cognizant of the fact that it can be used in military applications. And of course, national security is important. important. So that's good. But it certainly presents some interesting risks. It can be used in cybersecurity for finding new vectors to attack, although it can also be used for recognizing those vectors in cybersecurity as well. So there's a number of ways that it can be intentionally used as a as a weapon of some type as well as potential bad outcomes for unintended uh uses absolutely true and the weaponizing of ai is a dominant motif in a lot of science fiction after yeah. all ra- ranging from from robots to 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 the more invisible computer behind the scenes that that is controlling everything I think that there is a there's a strong appreciation, maybe and maybe an over overestimate of how much bad AI is out there now. I I suspect that there's probably more suspect AI in that category of unintended consequences than there is deliberately bad. But then again, it's very difficult to come up with a metric for measuring these things. The most the most meaningful metric for all of us is the extent to which we are affected very directly. And that may not be the right metric for, th- for even thinking about how much AI is bad and, and how often it's bad. Well, Sharon, before we go further, maybe you can tell our listeners about the Good Systems Project at UT and what its purpose is, its mission. What's it designed to do? The Good Systems Project was initiated by a group of researchers who were interested in all of these scientific developments around artificial intelligence with the recognition that things could go bad very quickly. And we wanted to not only understand some of the negative consequences, but especially understand some of the good consequences of AI and the good applications of AI and explore how we could embed ethical considerations into the design of artificial intelligence. The project as it stands right now 
at the University of Texas is a multi-year project, and it's changed even in the short three, four-year history that uh, that it has been around. Right now, we've embarked on six major projects, and each of those projects is tackling a domain that in which artificial intelligence is very significant and in which we believe we can make some meaningful contribution to understanding and perhaps remediating some of the potential negative aspects of artificial intelligence. For example, we have one project that's looking at the application of artificial intelligence to smart hand tools. Why hand tools? <laughs> There's a category of employment in which workers use hand tools. They may be craftsmen. They may be in that labor category that's that is that certainly is skilled, but it's not office work. They're using tools, and those tools may be especially amenable to being aided by artificial intelligence. Suppose you're using tools that entail some danger, like welding equipment or something like that. You could usefully apply AI to certain of these labor practices to really good effect, to shield humans, to make environments safer, but you don't really want to erode the jobs. So we're looking for that spot in which people can partner with artificial intelligence in order to improve the kind of work that they do with these hand tools. Another project that is, is in a similar vein is a robotics project, Living with Robots. And that team is very interested in exploring some of the social dimensions of robots. We know that robots can be very good for doing things that people either don't want to do or are slow at doing. And uh, we've identified certain realms in which we want to test robots. One has to do with working in a library and doing some of the monotonous manual labor like shelving books that that people do right now. Shelving books is manual, but you also need to know where to put them. Then you know there is a, a system to that. And we're trying to figure out if robots can be trained to do this work in a living, breathing environment where people are around. So robots need to have some skills at interacting with people. And this project is exploring some of the social dimensions around people interacting with robots in an in a campus environment. So we anticipate that within a year or two, we'll be seeing more and more robots on campus, not just in the library, but traveling between some buildings on different sorts of errands. And we have a team that's very interested in tracking people's reactions to the robots and how the robots handle certain very social situations. Another project is looking at transportation systems and the ways in which some of our mobility systems use data in their planning and in their implementation of, of roads and the broader built environment, relying on data that, that 
may be biased. For example, we have one researcher who's looked very carefully at the extent to which existing data sets around that transportation systems use, in fact, are not adjusted for certain deficiencies in the built environment that we that track with a poorer neighborhood with a minority neighborhood. And one thing that we're very interested in there is the extent to which data that is used to inform transportation systems doesn't account for some of these biases. Still, another project is looking at cameras. And we know that AI is really good at analyzing and generating information based on all kinds of data, it is way better than people at categorizing and scanning and interpreting visual data. We now have so many cameras in our environment, so much monitoring everywhere, that it's impossible for people to really keep up with the volume of visual data. However, artificial intelligence can do that very, very well. So by using artificial intelligence to analyze visual data, we have, on the one hand, the opportunity to understand evolving disaster situations much more capably, much faster, so that we can take remediating action. On the other hand, it might AI could get certain things wrong. And we've also found that cameras are deployed in certain environments in ways that not everybody might be happy with. Mm. There's a lot of discussion, for example, about police use of cameras, about something as mundane as automated license plate readers, for example, that might pick up information that some people feel is private. And this particular project is looking at the privacy dimensions that some of these new visual analytic capabilities that are embodied in artificial intelligence, looking at the privacy issues that arise with them. So that's a that's a handful of our projects. Sharon, that's a great set. And I, and I hope what our listeners get from that is, whereas, of course, at the University of Texas, with its world-class computer science department, there's theoretical research into AI. But the Good Systems Project it is specifically looking at the ways that humans interact with AI and, and in different ways. Well, you mentioned the hand tools example guided by a, you mentioned the interacting with robots, the transportation systems. And I'm I'm really, I'm really pleased to hear that that mission is so uh, carefully aligned with the benefits to humans, not just the theoretical underpinnings. Both are important, but with technology advancing so fast, it's important to have organizations like yours that are dedicated to understanding the influence, the impact, the ramifications, and how we can make that as positive for people as possible and limit the negative as much as possible. The, the essence of our approach is to create interdisciplinary teams so that we have technologists working with social scientists, working with humanists on all of these teams to the extent we can. 
So you're absolutely right. We didn't, this is not a theoretical mission in the sense of going into a laboratory and simply doing tests in a lab. We are trying to be very cognizant of the social dimensions and the ethical issues that come up when we begin to think about the applications of these theoretical advancements in specific social environments. Well, in light of all this and in light of your mission, I, I guess I have to ask you the obvious question, at least here in mid-April, which is, yeah. what do you think of the letter, the open letter in the community that came out that called for a cessation of any research in generative AI beyond the level of chat GPT-4? I, I personally had more reservations than than optimism about it, but I, I understood both sides. Did Good Systems Project take a stance on that call? Some of us did sign the letter. Uh, we had a lot of talk <laughs> about the letter. I think the consensus among our group was that this was a very modest step. It called for a moratorium. It was not calling for ceasing all research. It was calling right. for a, 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 a halt of fairly short duration, really. I think the letter said just six months. Uh, in order for people to begin to try to catch up to the potentials of this particular category of artificial intelligence technologies, I would fully agree personally, and, and I think some of my colleagues agree with me, that our policy bodies and our especially our policy apparatus is just woefully behind in coming to grips with some of the potentials right now and with even understanding how these systems work, where we want them to work, and what sorts of engagement with the population should occur in advance of broadly deploying these systems in a lot of our social, political, and economic lives. Yeah, I, I think the letter's um, best value was creating more discussion around the fact that uh, technology capabilities are racing far ahead of our ability to create and enforce good policies. And so, whereas I had some strong misgivings about whether people would actually pay attention to it, whether there'd be other nation states that took advantage of a six-month law, whether some companies would cheat and get ahead of others, and, and so on, I my view on it was, I don't want a six-month moratorium. I want the government to use this very discussion to invest in programs like yours at Good System, to, to invest in organizations like Responsible AI, and to do our best to not slow innovation, but to also accelerate understanding of it, including a strong interface to our government agencies that, you know, they have to enact policies to protect our environment, to protect our population, et cetera. I, I hope that this will be the beginning of increased funding for an attempt to have a human understanding of the ramifications as these capabilities race forward. I entirely agree with that. And we have seen more and more funding going towards those efforts. I was encouraged that there, there was some discussion at the federal level uh, from one of the federal agencies, NTIA, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, that's seeking public comment on crafting a policy specifically around artificial intelligence. We've seen a lot of 
abstract pronouncements that are operating at a, at a very high level. And it does seem as if it's time to bring that down into an operational space where people can directly take action and directly ensure that there's some accountability for some of the applications of artificial intelligence. It's, it, it's a, it, at once both an interesting conversation that we've seen in the past that that's, seems to pit the forces of innovation against the forces of regulation. I think that's the wrong way to put it. I really don't think that that's what our policy needs to focus on. It's not an either or environment at this point. We can be in favor of innovation with an ethical framework around that innovation, as long as we focus on what the ethics are. I agree 100%. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of closing questions. One of them here is, uh, what do you and the Good Systems Project think about generative AI in terms of risks and concerns within, well, let's start with the university since you're at a university, but then we'll talk about industry and, and in government and between government. So let's start with university. What do you, What is your take on that? Well, at the risk of rehashing what a lot of people <laughs> have talked about already, the most immediate response once the large large language processing AI systems came out was cheating, of course, and students yeah. cheating by using ChatGPT to write their papers and and so forth. I believe the consensus among most faculty is is that. It's better that our students understand how to use ChatGPT as a tool, mm -hmm. just the way years and years ago, people used calculators <laughs> as a tool. There, you may re recall many years ago, there was debates as to whether kids should use calculators in math classes and things like that. Well, we got over that. So too, I see my colleagues very quickly adjusting to ChatGPT and incorporating it so that we into our educational processes so that students have some exposure to it and they can see what it's good for, what it's not so good for. Many of my, I gave an exercise I to my students. I don't think I'm unique in that. I know I'm not unique in that at all. And some of them found that it was great for generating structure, not so great for generating content for structure for say a research project or something right. like that. Well, that's a good that's a good insight for them. I think beginning to explore how it can be used to make us more efficient to prompt a few new insights but also to encourage us to go more deeply than with our own faculties into into our research and into our our education i think chat gpt will just join the cadre of tools ultimately that we use in education that's that's probably the most prominent discussion that yeah. i've been hearing in the university environment so uh, i've actually talked to two university professors yeah. from ut lately and they had different perspectives both i thought incredibly insightful and valid one was from the computer science department and shared exactly what you just said. Chat GPT and other generative AI tools are not going away. Um, they should be considered as tools and we should learn how to use them to be more effective, not depend on them because they're not perfect tools. Um, 
And that is one difference from a calculator. The calculator always gives you the right answer. To work with a tool like Jet Chat GPT, it has a more a broader set of capabilities, but it requires some expertise overseeing it and utilizing it. And I thought she made a very good point about that. A different professor in the French department, good friend of mine, said that uh, she now makes her students do their writing assignments in class as opposed to taking them home because her class is about teaching people the language and teaching people how to communicate effectively in the language. And depending on a tool like ChatGPT could make it so easy to produce a good output that you're not truly learning. And I that also resonated with me because you think about ChatGPT being trained on the all of the information on the internet, some of which is not written so well. Um, it's not the case that everybody has read, you know, Elements of Style by Strunk and White and, and other equivalent books. I, I want people to be great writers if their content is going to be used as training data for programs that can generate writing. So I saw both sides of that. I thought that was interesting. Absolutely. And actually, I have heard more people talk about if they're giving tests, doing those tests in class, going back to paper and pencil mm -hmm. tests so that people have to be present. That said, the second story you recounted also suggests there might be a silver lining in, in enabling students to re-examine why they're in school. And if they're in a French class, do they really want to learn French or not? And if they really want to learn French, then they won't be using chat GPT. Maybe it will lead to um, a better assessment of how they're using their time and what they really want to do in a university environment with, with as much, especially with as much variety and richness as, as a place like the University of Texas. Great. Now we talked about it in a university environment. Let's talk about it in industry and government and other environments. What are good systems, biggest concerns about the use of generative AI in industry, in governments, and between companies and between governments? That's an interesting question. I can speak a little bit more capably to government in as much as I have been looking at how cities in particular are using artificial intelligence, not so much generative AI, but artificial intelligence and, and algorithmically driven systems. And I indeed do have some concerns. A lot of the adoption of these systems, probably this is the case for industry as well as the public sector, a lot of the adoption of these technologies is justified by the efficiencies that they buy. They can do things faster. Mm -hmm. They can crunch data faster. They can spit out responses faster. They can organize things faster. And that can save some costs. However, it gets a little worrisome when some of these technologies are adopted for one purpose and there can be some mission drift in terms of the applications of the technologies. In the sphere of research that I've been looking at, for example, how cities are using cameras for in different units, there was a by now kind of well-known occasion in San Diego in which people were the utilities department had adopted some smart street lights because they were more energy efficient and they had a lot of monitoring capabilities built into them which the utilities folks thought 
could be useful in the future. They weren't that interested in them right away. Well, so the lights were deployed, everything's good, but the police discovered that there were cameras in these lighting systems, they were networked, and they began to use them without really making many right. people in city government aware of this. And once citizens found out that the police were using this capability, people were unhappy about it, to put to, to put it mildly, <laughs> actually. And that led to the city of San Diego actually adopting a surveillance ordinance so that there would be more transparency and some citizen oversight of the adoption of the family of technologies that are, are grouped together. Not all of them are AI, but many of them are implicated in artificial intelligence routines. So I think that that was probably a hard lesson to learn. And it would be worth our while, I think, to have more of our public institutions, cities, state government, much less the federal government, take a careful look at where these tools are being used and what governance provisions are in place for them right now. I just don't think we have a handle on that, frankly. Right. Yeah, that, that concerns me greatly. I, but but again, that's not new to AI, right? I remember my first visit yeah. to the Hill and seeing all these staffers in their 20s without much, you know, very smart people, but very young, not much experience and responsible for drafting legislation for their senator or their representative. And I thought, well, this has got to be particularly challenging for someone this uh, inexperienced to, and not in technology, to draft legislation for technology. And that was 20 years ago when I had that thought. In this AI era, uh, things are moving so fast. Um, I, I really, getting back to our previous point, I really hope we can invest in the infrastructure, in the frameworks for making sure that we're that we're developing understanding and we're developing policies based on that understanding. And I think that's going to be the big challenge uh, of the next decade is, um, in addition to one that you mentioned earlier that we're going to talk about in a future podcast, which is job creation and destruction. I see a lot of things around that where people say, oh yeah, jobs are going to be destroyed. And others say, oh, don't worry. History shows that whenever there's an, a disruptive technology, uh, overall things recover and more jobs are created than destroyed. And then the counter to that is yes, but those people whose jobs were destroyed, they suffer while others might benefit from the new jobs. And so um, we're, I worry about that one as well. And I hope industry and government uh, we'll tackle that as well. Train up your employees, uh, continuous learning, staying on top of things, uh, making sure that just as government has programs to make sure that people don't get left behind, that should include technology as well, right? Absolutely. And it's, it is somewhat concerning that some of the large, highly visible technology companies have had high profile disturbances and either firings or resignations over ethical issues around the artificial intelligence tools that they are either developing or deploying. And in some cases, some of these companies dropped certain projects at the behest mm -hmm. of employees who were unhappy with them. It would be, I think, advisable and helpful if there was better public knowledge about 
what companies are doing and the kinds of policies that they're considering. I certainly understand that there's proprietary interests at stake and no company wants to totally divulge what they're up to and what their timeline is. But to the extent that this category of technologies is so consequential, it does seem to me that some oversight is is required now and a reinvestment in ethics that can stick yeah in the proprietary sector i think it's it's very warranted well one of the themes throughout our conversation is related to my final question the the need for people to learn and understand so that we can react so that individuals can keep up with job skills as they evolve so that governments can understand the best and most effective policies to not stifle innovation, but to protect people and so on. What about individuals? For my final question, what is your recommendation for individuals listening to this podcast for resources to help keep up their understanding of what these technologies are capable of and of what the issues are? It's, that's interesting that you raise the question of resources because I think I think even to use the existing resources, you you need some you need a certain skill set. I think there's not enough resources at this point. That said, there's an opportunity I think for everybody to just become more cognizant around the sorts of data that they generate for all sorts of purposes, everything from the Amazon order to the news, the online news that people examine on on any basis whatsoever so that people are, so that people understand the extent to which their own data, the data that they produce for a third party is available in some sort of a data set to the extent that we are more cognizant of the data that we produce, we have some purchase on the ability to control its use. One reason I'm so interested in cameras is with all the cameras being deployed in public spaces, we don't have much control over what visual images are being used what we're giving up by being unable to affirmatively opt into having our images being captured. So I do think a a different regime that could entail a a better structure for people to opt into their data being collected is called for. And people should begin to seek out places where they can both understand their data and exert their preferences or state their preferences. For example, there there is a a group, we have a chapter here in Austin, and it's a national organization, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Mm -hmm. that has been extremely interested in exactly this. They have some resources online that could be useful. One of our project deliverables is going to be a citizen's guide to artificial intelligence, but it's not ready quite yet. I do think, I'm sure we're not alone in trying to produce Mm -hmm. these guides, but we've looked around. There's not a lot of user-friendly guides right now, but I think becoming more familiar with the data that we're creating and what data policies and privacy policies are in place right now is one step people can take. 
right? And I'm glad you mentioned Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, and implicitly, of course, mentioned good systems. I encourage our listeners to track the efforts of good systems. When this Citizen's Guide to AI comes out, uh, I know you'll circulate it widely, and I know that we'll circulate it in the Austin Forum community. And of course, we encourage our listeners to keep following our content as well as we interview people like Professor Sharon Strover and bring many other experts to our to our in-person events, to our podcasts, and so on. This is an area that merits some continuous attention. Five months ago, there was no chat GPT. Now you cannot read the news without hearing about chat GPT. Things are changing fast. So I, I liked your suggestion for people to follow the news, follow credible news sources, make sure you understand references, uh, what the sources cited, et cetera. But um, I think it is important for people to keep up and I hope they'll track the efforts of the Good Systems Initiative at UT as one of those ways. Sharon, thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. I could talk to you forever and I hope we'll talk again very soon as we continue to cover AI as one of our recurring technology themes in the Austin Forum on Technology and Society. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jay, and thank you for highlighting good systems. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.